Hello and welcome. I'm Joe Frost here with my co-host Peter Linus and this is Being Human. We're back. Please tell me that you've got more of an intro. Well, if you've jumped into this episode, you really should go back and listen to the first couple of episodes. They were, in our opinion, brilliant. And we explained really clearly who we are, what this podcast is about. Sure. Okay. I'll do the grown-up work then. So welcome to our podcast, Being Human. I'm Joe. This is Peter. Um, and we're going to be exploring the ideas around what it means to be human in this contradictory, post-truth, fake news, beautiful, altruistic, self-obsessed, contradictory world in which we live. And this week... In our episode, we're going to be looking at culture and technology. So uh, we've looked at dating apps, we've looked at Love Island, we've looked at various bits and pieces, but we want to look more broadly at what our culture is saying uh, and what technology has to impact on that and why it is so important to our being human. And in particular, following Jesus in this cultural context in which we find ourselves. This podcast is about some cultural analysis, but it's also about how we respond to our culture. How do we live as disciples, followers of Jesus? What does church look like in this moment? Okay, so for this episode, we're asking, what does distraction do to our freedom? And does it matter who we give our attention to? Yes, great question. So uh, let me start with a quote that caught my eye. Uh, it was an interview with Sean Parker. He was the first president of Facebook. Um, I think he was played by Justin Timberlake in the movie, if that's your way into it. He calls himself a conscientious objector to social media. And he said, God only knows what is uh, doing this is doing to our children's brains. The thought process that went into building these applications, Facebook being the first of them, was all up about uh, what, how we consume as much of our time and conscious attentions as possible. And that means we need to give you a little dopamine hit once in a while because someone liked or commented on your photo and that's going to get you to contribute more content, get more likes, get more comments and so on. And this is the social validation feedback loop, exactly the kind of thing that a hacker like Sean, he's saying himself, would come up with um, because you're exploiting a vulnerability in human psychology. So he's totally admitting that it was, it was rigged, it's designed to hook us on like a dopamine hit. So that's a fairly stinging indictment from one of social media's founding fathers. Yeah, and he's not the only one. So uh, nerdy that I am, I was watching a program, a guy called Tristan Harris, another Silicon Valley insider. He was talking about what he calls the arms race for people's attention. And that's why so many in Silicon Valley, uh, which makes all these products, you know, don't allow their own kids or their own uh, homes or schools to have so much of the technology which they create. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I saw a panorama, panorama program that's a tongue twister, um, about the guy who came up with the scrolling feature. Mm. And he now runs um, a centre trying to limit the use of technology. He says that he's taken all the colour off his phone so he doesn't see the red and blue buttons that have been deliberately put in to take his attention and distract him. Yeah, so it seems like we could probably go on and list loads of examples, but the architects of this attention economy, they understand how powerful it is. The danger is that most of us don't uh, we don't pay for it, so we assume that it is free, again our theme, but there's always a cost. Yes, as someone once said, if the product is free, the product is me. Oh, yeah. But the thing is, people have been um, predicting this for our culture 
for years. Um, Neil Postman, in his uh, book in from 1985, Amusing Ourselves to Death, argued that expressing ideas through visual imagery, imagery, sorry, <laughs> um, television will reduce politics, news, history, and other serious topics to entertainment. It will destroy serious and rational public conversation. And he predicted that two areas would be most damaged by TV entertainment culture, politics and religion. Spot on. <laughs> politics, he predicted that TV celebrities would replace intelligent, wise leaders. I'll make no comments. Uh, and in religion, he predicted that the depth and discipleship would give way to superficial, feel-good spirituality. Yes, so Postman had no idea what he was talking about. None. So I remember reading Amusing Ourselves to Death when I was studying back at Regent College a lifetime ago, it feels like. Um, and Postman opens his book comparing 1984 by George Orwell and Brave New World by Huxley. And Huxley was writing back in the early 30s and talking about man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. And so, so many people say today, oh, it's 1984 and is that what we're looking at? But actually, it feels like Postman, or sorry, Huxley was better uh, and more accurate in this infinite appetite for distraction. He foresaw a future dystopia based on not a dictatorship, but distraction where sex and entertainment and busyness tear apart the very fabric of society. He talked about the technologies of the final solution, the rise of consumerism, sexual liberation. He was spot on in so many ways. <laughs> I do wonder, though, whether or not Huxley precedes Orwell. That would be my question to that little who was right and who was wrong. But anyway. Oh, man, that's a whole other like discussion. It feels like it could be another episode, but we'll, we'll hold fire. Um, and Mark Sayers picks up on some of those ideas in talking about digital capitalism. Uh, Mark's an Aussie pastor. Uh, he's down in Melbourne. Uh, he loves digging down into the data. He and John Mark Comer do This Cultural Moment, a fantastic podcast. And he says the attention economy is a weird combination of right and left. Uh, digital capitalism, he also likes to talk about the, the sex ethics of the progressive left and the free market capitalism, the right, come together. Uh, the freedom of the sexual revolution meets the free market and they get into bed together. His pun, not mine. And he says that most of all in something like Tinder, because Tinder is a dating app that combines free market choice and the free sex ethics of the progressive left. Swipe left, swipe right. It's got them both combined together in digital capitalism. <laughs> okay, so um, young people in our churches will be finding that there is so much to um, say for itself in terms of how we engage uh, technologically into relationships because forming relationships is difficult and it puts you in a vulnerable space. It is hard and you will make mistakes and you will feel um, as if you're stepping out of your comfort zone. But our culture has set itself up so that relationships are easy, that they aren't costly, and that this is a really good way of doing it. And we've said it before, um, we barely notice the water in which we're swimming in, the cultural narrative in which we are operating under, so that this swipe left, swipe right, um, see what you like and just take it becomes our normal behaviour. Norm the norm and that's so and yeah we're really bad then asking a question like is this norm where did this come from and so mark again unpacks some stuff on culture that i think can be quite helpful because uh, in this episode we're looking at that bigger pe picture of what is culture and the first aspect he says that word comes from is cultus the kind of religious movement a cult so culture has links with cult ways of worship 
And we live in a culture of individualism. We're told a religious story where we are the center of the worship. And then we're sold indulgences, as he puts it, consumer goods to make us feel better about ourselves because we are the center of worship. So everything in our culture then becomes about individual identity, essentially about the worshipping of self. Mm. Um, so we're the idol image and how we present ourselves becomes utterly critical, therefore. And so the rise of things like Instagram, because image shapes identity and identity is shaped by image. Yes, we've got individualism, image, identity, idols, all rolled into one in that part. So you've got the cultural link to cultus, what we worship, and that puts us in the centre of culture. Then in the secondary, talks about is kind of the idea of being enculturated, that we inhabit a story, that we inhabit or we live in a culture. We go and we move to a different place, we kind of get that idea, oh, we inhabit and move into a different culture. And he's trying to say there, look, it's more than a set of beliefs. Uh, the church is too often kind of believed in sanctification by information transfer. If we could just teach people a little bit more, if we could just shift their worldview, we'd sort them out. And it's about belief in content versus the fact, the reality that we inhabit a story. Very good. And stories, as we talked last time about the idea that um, stories are inhabited by our bodies, which are inhabited by habits. Habits are never overruled by information. They're yeah. always overruled by practice. So we're um, more than brains on sticks. Exactly. So we've we often go back to sermons, we go to books, changing our minds, um, but we can't do that through a thirty-minute intellectual sermon, as we talked about um, last time. Instead, we're always being shaped by motivation and emotion and feeling and intuition through adverts, TV stories, social media, movies, and just our daily rituals, which are all part of our culture. Yeah, so Leslie Newbegin was a kind of legendary missional thinker. Bishop went off to India and then came back to the UK and was really struck by the changes that he saw. And he said, if you want to know what someone believes, don't look at what they say they believe, look at what they do. Yes. Yeah, so the the apps and and Netflix and all those, and Netflix looks at what we put in our what we want to watch, which is usually the kind of cultured program. And then it looks like it looks at what we've actually binge watched and what we what we did. Uh, dating apps do the same. We say we want this in a partner, but the people we actually choose are different. And it relies on what we actually do or choose to understand our choices and what we really believe. So they say that Google, Netflix, dating apps know more about us than we know about ourselves. And this is such a challenge, isn't it? Because, I mean, even back in the Old Testament, when we look at, at the... Um, calling of Israel to worship Yahweh and yet so easily adopted the worship and the practice of the local gods because they lived and inhabited a culture. And it's the same is true for us today. We may say we believe something or tick a statement of faith, but it's so easy to live as part of a different story because that is the culture in which we find ourselves emerged. And which one wins? The story wins over what we say we believe in time. We can't deal with the inconsistency and ultimately the way we live is the real picture of who we are rather than what we say. So he's, he's two points. So he's got culture is about worship, cultus. Culture is about enculturated or inhabiting a story. And thirdly, culture is linked with the idea of cultivation, gardening, that we cultivate um, crops, that we pull out the weeds that we see, that we water and we feed the plants and ensure they get enough heat and we get enough light. So we cultivate, and that goes again to Smith's habit point, that cultivation takes time, it's hard work. Yes, so there's this idea that, therefore, that we're working towards something, we're being intentional, um, we're repeatedly doing it, and we're 
we're forming the story in which we want to have it consciously so that eventually it becomes the unconscious habits, but they're part of our story. Yeah. Love it. And so if Marx right in that kind of very broad definition of culture, and I think there's much to commend it, then it's no wonder that culture is so important. That's why it matters if it's what we worship and it shapes who we are in terms of the story. And if it's about the things that we cultivate, the habits that we have, it's about our daily practices, then culture is a huge issue. And this is why we are so fascinated by technology, because technology is forming, curating and cultivating our habits at every step of the way when it's trying to create this distraction attention economy it's forming our culture and telling us our stories totally so you know, stats tell us that if 65 percent of millennials look at their smartphones within five minutes of waking up yep and the 65 percent of us take our phones to the bathroom with us yep that's the only way in which we're both millennials <laughs> uh, actually there's quite a few ways in which i'm a millennial <laughs> you on the other hand looking in from the outside i think we're both sort of confessing to some aspects of those <laughs> But it is a challenge, isn't it? Because our phones, technology, all of these things are so helpful. Um, the EA, we have Instagram accounts, we have Twitter accounts, we have Facebook accounts, we're doing a podcast, we're utilising all these forms of technology. Um, I Even in my normal life, there was no way that I would have survived this Christmas if it wasn't for same day delivery. Yeah. We can't just opt out. No, total opt out isn't the answer. It doesn't seem to be the answer. Um, so what is freedom, and particularly what is freedom in Christ in this moment, that counter some of these powerful trends? How do we live in this culture, recognise some of what it's doing, but engage healthily, is that possible, in technology? So, any thoughts? <laughs> So I had written down these, uh, we, we were jotting some notes and you laughed because I said they all began with D. I had four things I wanted to highlight <laughs> and you accused me of being the preacher I <laughs> that I sometimes am. <laughs> well, the first thing we've talked about is distraction. Yeah. So the reality is we waste inordinate amounts of time online. Uh, I get that disturbing message. My screen time app thing pops up and tells me how long I've spent on my phone. Are you going to confess? I'm definitely not going to <laughs> confess it. Um, but you try waiting for a train, a plane, or a bus or without looking at your phone these days, and it's just like uh, everybody's on them. Yeah, but yeah. a colleague of ours um, has just got a Nokia phone, and he's saying how beautiful it is for his life and his well-being and his um, mental health and all this until um, the trains are cancelled and everyone is on their phones finding out when the next train is due and he's just sat there in anxiety and, and ignorance trying to work out when the train might actually turn up. Which is why for many of us we can't just simply abandon them but we are saying, so I meet people and say I don't have time to read that, I don't have time to do that and it's going, well just flick up your phone and tell me how long you spent on your phone <laughs> and it's not all bad, it's kind of multiple things we know but yeah. yeah, so the first thing is it's absolutely distracting us. Yes, I mean, my screen time app has definitely persuaded me to buy a tickless alarm clock um, in the hopes that I will ban my phone from my bedroom. Um, I've deleted box sets apps from my phone um, and tried to move um, devotional apps to a more prominent place in my screen, all designed to try and help me come away from the things that distract me so I can be more intentional. Yeah, it's not just like phones, it's Netflix, it's some of the things we get on the phones. 
Um, and the challenge is, you know, choose this day whom you shall serve. You know, as for me and my household, I will serve the Lord. And it sounds really sanctimonious, but the reality is that's the question we're fundamentally being asked. Um, where are we going to dedicate our time to? Yes. So what does that mean in terms of these small acts of defiance? Um, against the giant juggernauts of technological domination, um, and how do we how do we become more aware of that, and therefore how do we respond? Yeah, well, some of the things we've said before, you know, it's wearing the watch, it's setting the phone down. Is it a digital Sabbath? Is it coming away from the phone? Is it saying intentionally I'm not going to use it, or I'm going to take some of the apps off my phone? So. For some, we need to come away from Twitter and Facebook. Others might say, well, I'm going to have it on my computer, but I need to more intentionally engage in it. It's not just going to be there and so easily accessible on my phone. Nice. So, yeah, we've got distraction. First D, preacher of me goes to second D, dominance. (laughs) And that raises the question, I guess, just of the sheer dominance of some of the apps. So um, Facebook is one of the kind of dominant ones, the sheer level of usage. I think it's 2.2 2.2 billion users and I think it's 1.4 billion daily users wow. it's been compared to a religion and I think the church actually would be happy if it had 1.4 billion daily users at the level of engagement Facebook have but what's concerning about Facebook is that Mark Zuckerberg uh, although it's a public company and people own shares and some of you may own shares you may not even realise it through your pensions and different things but Zuckerberg owns 60% of the voting rights he has the golden share it only has about 30,000 employees, quite a flat leadership. It's Mark Zuckerberg and Sheryl Sandberg at the top. But basically, Zuckerberg has control of what 2.2 billion people get to see and do. That's a huge amount of influence. That's a huge amount of power, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, 2.2 billion users, that's way beyond the influence of a state um, or a government. And whether you're Christian or another minority, what happens when a company wants to exclude you um, because you are are perpetuating a perspective or a behaviour or an ideology or a religion that falls foul of what they think is is good business. At the end of the day, Facebook's bigger, richer and more influential than most states, but is run like a private company. It's got none of the accountability or legal constraints that government has. Whereas the control lies with just one person. Yeah, so Orwell's 1984 was about governments was the sort of theory, but they're actually largely more accountable, as you say. So in this case, the private company can do what it likes, so it it can ban people from it. So you're seeing on Crowdfunder, uh, Transgender Trend, which is a network engaged from transgender parents, was was banned from that. Nothing to do with faith in that moment. GoFundMe banned Israel Folau, the Australian rugby player. Twitter banned Unplanned the movie. Ray Blanchard, who's a, a, again a, a, a trans activist, was banned from Twitter. There's there's a whole series of things at Project Veritas in the States who looks at all sorts of people being banned. And so you have these moments where different people, feminists, lesbians, Christians, all sorts of people get banned from a platform. And you're saying well, it's only a private company. But the reality is that Facebook and Twitter and some of these are so dominant that if you're off those, you've been excluded from a significant part of the public square. Yes. I mean, we're going to look at this more in a later episode, but I think it is fundamental to this question of freedom and of humanity, of what does it mean to be human, to ask this question, what does what does it mean when companies use their influence over those that they disagree with, either to manipulate them or to exclude those that they can't influence? Yeah, so they've got, um, we've looked at distraction and dominance, but part of their dominance is because of the amount of data that they hold on us. 
Uh, so you and I have to live in a world of GDPR and the organization that we work for. Beautiful. <laughs> so we, we've become experts, if you like, on that. Uh, so I was inspired in some weird, strange shape or form to do some subject access requests, which is where you write to other companies. And okay. say, what data are you holding on me? Oh, no, awkward. Um, partly because we were doing this, uh, so this was fun. So I ended up writing to one, a major UK company. Uh, well, not UK, a global company. Uh, so I won't say who. Anyway, I wrote to them and they were coming back to me and clarifying. So this guy rang me. He was a lawyer who worked for them. <laughs> he said, I looked up your email and clicked on it. I'd sent it from my work email from EA. And then he said, I ended up reading a transform doc, a document on transgender that I'd written. He was the lawyer doing the subject access work on behalf of a major global company. Fairly sure that you hadn't given him consent to use your email. Well, there's that, that question search. for one, but it's the most hilarious way to do kind of mission in this moment that somebody looked this up. So I love that. But uh, yeah, so I was watching this uh, BBC documentary on a, a click and it was this guy who asked for all this data back from companies. And they were saying, based on info they had about him, they had typed him to be the top 10% for indulgence or the top 10% of probability to online gamble. So he was then asking, does that mean I'm going to get um, ads directed at me around that? And he's like, yeah, absolutely you are, um, which has this huge impact. Then then the robots that hoover up in your house. Um, so he got one of those and then he took it into a lab to see how many other companies it was talking to. It was called, The robot was sending data to 54 other companies. Oh, Guess what data? the outline of your house, potentially when someone was there. Some of them had audio features built in. So it could have an audio or a video coming from your house and you have implicitly consented when you buy it by ticking the box for it to send data. So basically the cheaper the product is, the more likely it is to be sharing your data with somebody else. My goodness. I mean, I remember putting parental controls on um, uh, my browser for my kid to go online. And it kept coming up every single time she typed in any URL about 12 or 13 um, hidden links and connections were coming up as trackers for Facebook and Amazon and Google would all pop up. Whether she was doing anything to do with any of those sites or not, they were tracking absolutely everything, which brings us back to this idea that in everything that we're doing and everything everywhere that we're operating, we are the product. We're the bit that's being yes. analysed and commoditized. And we think that in one respect, a colleague of mine thinks that this is great. It just means that he's more likely to get targeted by advertisers that he's actually interested in. He's all, he's going to get um, sold products that he already wants. But it, there's such a level of manipulation. So the question is, why is Facebook engaged with um, buying data on heart monitoring, on your insulin levels if you're diabetic, on women's monthly hormonal cycles? That's a great question. <laughs> <laughs> but there's these, all these apps out at the moment that are monitoring women's hormonal cycles um, and they're free, but they're being sponsored for huge amounts of money by Facebook and other um data mining companies because they want to know when women are most likely to buy stuff, when women are most likely to engage in political conversations. And if this isn't about manipulation, then I don't know what is, because everything that we're being um, investigated on isn't just about whether or not they can sell us more stuff, but it's also whether or not they can change our culture, they can change our opinions, they can change our behaviour. It's so much more than just whether or not we'll buy the latest 
robot Hoover. Yes, because it's so much more than privacy, which is kind of people's initial response. You're like, oh, OK, well, I'm thinking about my privacy. That is important, but it's the target of advertising. It's the change of behavior. The data economy is bigger than the oil and gas economy. That's where the money is for many of these guys. Exactly. And then the last day, distortion, is kind of how it changes the way we do things. So that's the behavior modification beginning to come through. It's a kind of world of hyper-reality. Coke used to say, even better than the real thing. Well, Instagram is saying, here's life, even better than the real thing. You can Photoshop that. You can put a filter on this. The advertisers are throwing us an ideal again. And we're saying, is that what we're supposed to aspire to? Yes, and everything is about that aspiration. It's all about the Instagram. It's all about um, the curated reality that we live in. Um, advertising is constantly impacting how we see ourselves and how we operate in our world. We're estimated to see over 5,000 adverts a day. And at some point, that has got to affect who we are and how we see ourselves. So you start putting that together, you get a distorted reality, unrealistic notion of what's there. You get your behavior modified and because of the data they hold on you and how they're targeting the adverts, they've got a dominant position to be able to do it. And all the time they're distracting us with new ideas and new ways of going. You could begin to see the serious level of influence that these companies have. And all the while they're painting these unrealistic images about what it means to be successful, what it means to be attractive, all the stuff that we were talking about last time. And ultimately selling everybody the idea that why should you have to settle for horses when you could have unicorns instead? Oh, yes. Not even going to a whole unicorn piece you're into. I love it. But they create the impression then that we're free. So because most of these products are free and that we have been given more choice than ever before. So, of course, there's no coercion in it. It's not just that they do these things. It's while simultaneously saying that we're free. Yes. And yet in all of it, we are ultimately the product being mined and harvested. So having depressed everybody, <laughs> is there anything we can do about it? Should we all just run away and become hermits? I mean, you are basically a hermit anyway. <laughs> you live in the absolute back of beyond. Um, but even here, you can still get Amazon Prime. So, no, I don't think we should. I don't think opt out is is the answer. I think the alter answer is transformation. Yeah, So, but that is challenging to be the salt and to be the light, to be the yeast. Like, that's easy said. What do you mean, transformation? Okay, so just as Paul wrote in Romans 12... Uh, one and two, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We are there to offer an alternative narrative and to do that intentionally and deliberately. Yes, and we are part of a kinder culture, but that that's tough. We live in a kingdom of God that requires sacrifice, living sacrifice, as, as Paul notes there. But our culture wants to raise the individual up and make them God. And the irony is that the biblical text is saying we are image bearers. That's the only legitimate image bearer idol, if you like, that can carry the image of God is us as human beings. But like Jesus, we are to offer ourselves then as living sacrifices. Uh, Eugene Peterson, again, I think in, in, in Romans 12, is saying this, take your everyday ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Nice. So in other words, we're embracing what God does for you as the best thing you can do for him. It's um, it's the idea of not becoming so well-adjusted to your culture that you just fit into it without even 
thinking about it, but rather fix the attention on God, on who he says we are, on what he says is the good and proper worship, learning what is his will, and you will be changed from the inside out, able to recognise what he wants from you and respond to it. Unlike the culture around you, which is always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God is raising you up. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, and that's, I think Peterson catches that well, that level of immaturity the culture around us is doing as he kind of rephrases uh, that, that, that Romans 12. But it's simple, but it's profound. Um, and so we don't do money the way the culture around us does money. We don't do technology like the culture around us does it. Yeah. We don't do relationships and sexuality. Marriage and parenting require sacrifice. And that isn't to say only Christians are married, obviously, or only Christians can raise kids. We're not saying that. But in a world of authenticity, the narrative is be your true self. If you no longer love the person you're with, the authentic, the true, the honest thing to do is just to move on to someone you do love. Commitment is completely obliterated. Sacrifice is anathema in an authentic culture. And we're saying actually, no, that's not the way to true freedom. Yes. So in every part of the conversation that we're having as a culture, we're offering a different narrative. So whether it's identity politics or consumerism or materialism, these aren't part of our kingdom culture. Instead, the, as Paul goes on in Romans 12 to say, is don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance to the faith that God has given us. We're part of one body. And so, again, it's this idea that we are using our freedom in community, in relationship, rooted in a sacrificial relationship with God, all the while offering a different story to the one that we're living in. Yeah, and the answer, like we keep going and drilling back to Romans 12 here because, you know, don't think of yourself more highly than you are with sober judgment. It doesn't catch our culture maybe initially, but Paul keeps going back. He says, we're called to love, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, honour one another above yourselves. Don't burn out. Keep yourselves fueled on fire. So how do you do that? You pursue the presence of God. We're joyful in hope. We're patient when things are hard. We're faithful in prayer. Some of this isn't rocket science. It's kind of basic discipleship 101 that we forgot. Share with your Christian brothers and sisters who are in need. Practice hospitality. So welcome in the stranger uh, beyond your community. Bless those that persecute you. Live in harmony with one another. Overcome evil with good. Yes. And isn't that what it means to be human? Mm. Isn't that what freedom actually means and that's why our hearts get excited when we hear those concepts instead of culture dragging us away i think culture is fundamentally attacking what it means to be human it attacks it at the beginning and end of life it attacks it in how we um uh, consume instead of steward creation it attacks it in terms of sexuality gender marriage commitment family sex relationships all these things that our culture is constantly in conversation with Christians get in so much trouble because we embrace or or don't think about the story that we are finding ourselves in. We promote the half story of gospel, just fall and redemption, rather than going onto that fuller story that we talked about in episode one. Yeah, or we're still the quarter story that we mentioned, Jesus loves you. And then so the re-inhabiting of that fuller story is something we're kind of drilling and driving after, that creation matters, that bodies matter, that sex matters, that relationship matters, that we have a purpose, that we are divine image bearers. This is what it means to be human, that God is in the business of reconciling all things to himself and that we are the first fruits of the coming kingdom, like the spies who went into the promised land and brought back the, the, the first crops or products from there. We are the first fruits and the first signs of what is to come. 
And we are the first fruits, therefore, of living in a rooted relationship with God, where God is with his people and we will be with him. Beautiful. Yeah. And so the first step on a 12-step AA program is to recognize that we have a problem uh, and then that there is a power greater than ourselves that can restore us. And that's a big part of what we're saying here. We need to recognize the issue. Social media and technology are not neutral. But they're also that God desires to redeem and restore us um, and that some of the technological advances are about connection, are about community, are about um, moving us forward. But that ultimately our full humanity can only be found in Christ. It may be that we need a digital detox. It may be that you need a digital rule of life to put it back in its proper place. Um, But ultimately, we need to be pursuing the presence of God. Otherwise, we're going to miss the point. Um, it's not about wrestling with this stuff on your own. If you're trying to do this as an individual, again, we're probably missing the point, aren't we? That actually it's about community. It's about being part of the body. It's about finding people who hunger and thirst for more of God's kingdom and his righteousness, rooting yourselves in a, in a church community, because as we all often say, we know the church isn't perfect, but it is God's methodology of changing and transforming us into being more like him and you said i was the preacher (laughs) go for it so that's exactly what we're saying look uh, we want to say maybe it's andy crouch's uh, TechWise family one hour a day one day a week one week a year you need to come off technology maybe it's working with kids on phones but again trying to encourage others to do it with us so there's a community around us and there's lots of different ways that we can respond to what's going on So um, we do hope that you found this conversation helpful. It certainly stretched some of my thinking. But if this is just information, then probably we have failed. Um, Because as much as we love the information and the data and the... um Uh, the interest that some of these stories have we're way more interested in what we do with this and ultimately what we want to do with this is follow Jesus more deeply and more fully in our lives so that's it for this episode because kind of out of time we'll see you next time who knows what we'll be considering it could be social media it could be China's social credit system it could be AI it could be politics law religion we're still working on that we hope you've enjoyed this episode we hope you'll join us next time Please do subscribe, sign up, spread the word, tell your friends about us, rate us, rank us, tell them that we're amazing. Uh, Yeah, thanks for joining us. Bye. Be blessed. Bye.